Good morning. Andy's filling in for Joe today. He had mm -hmm. to work. I didn't realize that. <laughs> Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got, to jo got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Son, some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph was, has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dr. Jeff Leonard is here, and it's so neat to see how God works these things out because uh, Jeff has been teaching on Wednesday night in the book uh, or in the life of Joseph, and Jim uh, had agreed with him to do a series on Sunday mornings on the life of Joseph. So we talked about it in the middle of the week and realized, hey, Jeff is geared up. Uh, he did a great job this past Wednesday night teaching, and so he agreed to come and be our uh, preacher, teacher, this morning for this service. And uh, I, I will say again what I've said to, about him several times. He is one of those unique individuals. By the way, let me say in parentheses, I've used that line many times related to Jim Barnett, in other churches before I ever came to Brookwood, but I do put them in the same category. One of those unique individuals who, who um, is a good communicator. He grew up in Pleasant Grove, just out on the west side of Birmingham. He's just a, a good communicator, but at the same time, 
he has a very heavy background and scholarship, did his PhD at Brandeis University in Hebrew, need I say more? I mean, that's just about as weighty on the scholarship side as you could get. And at the same time, he is just an outstanding, I started to say good old boy, I shouldn't say that, should I? He is, he's a good old boy who's just got a weighty uh, scholarship bag with him. You'll, you'll learn, if you haven't heard him, you'll find that out in just a few moments. It's great to have him with us. He is a professor in the same department as Jim Barnett, that is Department of Religion at Samford University, and uh, it's great to have him. Thank you, Jeff, for being here. Tim, my boys are going to die when they heard that you called me a good old boy. While I do drive a truck, I have declared that truck to be a country music-free zone. And everything I know about NASCAR, I learned from the movie Talladega Night. So um, it's, it's going to be pretty wild when I, uh, when I tell them. That's one more to put on my resume. Good old boy. <clears throat> You ever had one of those days? Uh, today was not that day. Today's been fine, except for being called a good old boy. Um, but uh, there are these days when it's just, you, you get that feeling about midway through when you say, okay, it's going to be one of those. Um, I, uh, when I was up at Brandeis, I had a, I, I'd gotten up really early to finish, a, I can't remember if it was a paper or study for a test or whatever it was, but I left my house too late, um, and so I didn't get a chance to get any breakfast. And so it's not a big deal. There were several um, fast food places that I was going to pass on the way. And so I, um, I was going to stop by this Dunkin' Donuts that was there. don't really care for Dunkin' Donuts all that much. But at this point, just any kind of calories would be fine. The people were actually standing in such a line that they were out the door. That wasn't going to work. So I just passed by that place. There was a McDonald's that was uh, for a little further on the way. And um, so I thought, okay, McDonald's will be fine. That's better than Dunkin' Donuts anyway. And sure enough, you've been there where the, the cars are all the way like circled around the restaurant. This was not going to work. Still wasn't that big a deal because when you go to Brandeis, it's a lot like Sanford where you, you kind of park at the bottom of the hill and then you walk up this mountain to get to uh, your classes. Well, there's a coffee shop halfway you know, up the way there in the student center. No problem. Except this was like that first warm day, um, you know, which in you know, Boston is around like July. Um, the... The joke we always had was they had two seasons, winter and the 4th of July, um, and so um, this was, you know, it wasn't quite that late, but this was that first warmish day, and so people were not getting coffee as, as God intended. They're getting all the frou-frou drinks with the half-calf and the ice and the mocha, and st- I don't even know such things, you know, I, it's just coffee is what I want, that's why God made plants. Um, and so I, I wanted to get, but each one of those drinks takes like 10 minutes to prepare, and so the line of people is just kind of streaming down, and so that was it. I, I thought, no, and then I remembered, it's okay, there is a vending machine in the building where I'm going to um, get my, uh, my, have my class, I'll, I'll be able to get something there. And so I went, and I went down to the basement there where the vending machine was, and it didn't have change. I would have happily paid a dollar for any item in the thing, but because it couldn't give me change back, it, it, it wouldn't take it. It would take the dollar and spit it right back out to me, and that was my last chance. And so I walked up to my class, disconsolate, dejected, not feeling like a good old boy, and sat down in my seat there, and then 
a miracle happen. One of the other students, his wife had made brownies, and he had brought them to class. And so I sat right next to Eric, and I got this giant slab of a brownie, and it was there for me to eat, and and I was between him and the professor, so he was watching me as I put the first bite of brownie in my mouth. There are very few foods that I don't like. Mayonnaise, I think, is vile and satanic. I've mentioned this on Wednesday nights. Another one that I just cannot abide is raspberry. It just, for all the world, it tastes like Robitussin to me. I mean, it just, I I don't know what it is about my tongue, but there is absolutely no difference in my mouth between Robitussin and raspberry. And as I took a bite of this ginormous brownie, it was a chocolate raspberry brownie, or a chocolate Robitussin brownie, if you like. (laughs) And I had no choice but to, to try to sit there and eat this thing so that I would not offend my friend Eric, who was sitting there with everybody. At least I was looking at the professor. I could wince a little bit. as I, I didn't cough for like months um, after that. But <laughs> you, you've had those days before, you know, where it just, it just seems like nothing goes right when we face adversity. Now, that's obviously just small and, you know, no big deal. Anybody can survive such things. But the truth is... A lot of times, the adversity that we face is very real adversity. It is life-changing, soul-searching adversity that we encounter. And the life of Joseph is nothing if not a life that is consumed with adversity. Think of some of the things that Joseph went through, some that were just read earlier. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. His own brothers say about him. He's sold into a life of slavery in Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, he serves the master to whom he is sold well, and it seems like things are going well. And then Mrs. Potiphar can't keep her paws off of Joseph. He resists her every um, advance and says, no, 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 I, I couldn't possibly. In fact, he says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And yet the result, she is turned down by Joseph, makes up a story about how he went after her anyway. When his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, saying, this is the way your servant treated me, he became enraged Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. Where the prisoners were confined, he remained there. Joseph has been a good guy and yet gotten thrown into prison. And even in prison, when Joseph tries to do the right thing and helps out these two guys, or at least one of the two guys, by interpreting the dream there and tells the cupbearer that he's going to be restored, he says to the cupbearer, "'Remember me when it is well with you. Please do me the kindness.'" To make mention of me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this place. For in fact, I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me in the dungeon. And when the cupbearer is restored to his place, the text says, Yet he did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Joseph's life is nothing, seemingly, but one long string of adversity. And it's what throws into such relief 
the things that he says when he finally encounters his brothers. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive. You intended to do harm for me, but God intended it for good. This is a story that is not just about adversity. It's also about Joseph's acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in the midst of that adversity. Now, I feel like I am almost uniquely qualified to talk about issues of God's sovereignty. Now, the reason I say this is because I have just the most unique denominational background. Um, I came to uh, be a Christian when I was five years old in vacation Bible school at First Baptist Church of Pleasant Grove. But, but we didn't actually attend a Baptist church. My denominational background was in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, a, a denomination that cares about missions and Jesus and really not much else. Um, that's about all that we're interested in. And, and yet, well, even though I went to that kind of, uh, deno- or grew up in that denomination, where I went to get my Ph.D. was at a Jewish university, Brandeis. And when I came back home, I taught at a Presbyterian school, Briarwood, until I got a job at a Baptist school, Samford, and we attend a Baptist church, I've got it all covered. Um, I, you know, I'm covering all my bases. Um, and when you combine that with a contrarian personality, I, I've got you know, the perfect storm of really not agreeing with anybody on just about anything theologically. And I can't help it. It's, a, it's not the better angels of my nature, but um, sometimes I, I like to just take a little bit of red meat and throw it out there for my students. Um, every once in a while, you know, you'll get that delightful group of freshmen who are often wrong but never in doubt, and um, they, <laughs> they have all the answers to the sovereignty issue on a three-by-five card that they carry around with them, and so if it's my Presbyterian friends who have constructed castles in the air theologically, they've got every T and I dotted or crossed if it were the T, uh, I could probably get kicked out of being Presbyterian if I had made that mistake, Um, from uh, a predestination, or or it might be my Baptist friends who are much more free will oriented, for whom you can provoke with passages like, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated, or he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, you see what that means? And see, I just can't help it. The reason I can get away with such things is because the Bible very rarely talks about sovereignty the way my students talk about sovereignty, or the way most of us think about sovereignty. It almost never does theology for theology's sake. When the Bible talks about sovereignty, it's talking about something that is incredibly practical. And I want to give you four ideas today that I think emerge from this Joseph story. And they're all about adversity and sovereignty, but they are all intensely practical ideas that I think come from this story. Just quickly moving through them. First of all, God is always working behind the scenes to accomplish His will. God is always working behind the scenes to accomplish His will. It may be the most obvious point of the life of Joseph. Joseph says repeatedly, he affirms repeatedly this idea. Genesis 45, 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. Whatever you thought you were doing, God was working through this behind the scenes. Genesis 45, 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. 
Genesis 45, 8, It was not you who sent me here but God. And Genesis 50, verse 20, Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. There was never a moment in the life of Joseph when God was not working behind the scenes to accomplish exactly what he wanted to. God is always working behind the scenes to accomplish his will. Secondly, though, the characters that God uses to accomplish his will are always fallen characters. Think of the characters in this story of Joseph. You've got people like Jacob. Jacob is so partial to the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, that he is willing to put the lives of his other ten sons in danger just to preserve them. There's a moment before Benjamin has even been born when Jacob is coming back with his 11 sons to meet um, Esau, the person that he's stolen the blessing from. And if you read that passage carefully, you'll notice he divides his family up so Esau won't be able to kill all of them at once. And the group that he sends first are the sons of the handmaidens, Bilhah and Zilpah. And the group that he sends second are the sons of Leah, the unloved wife. And the group that he keeps back with himself are Rachel and Joseph. So that maybe if anybody survives, at least my favorite will survive. Jacob is a flawed character. The brothers, my goodness, now I I have to confess I have a little sympathy for the brothers. As the oldest child in my family and the owner of a younger brother, I think they kind of let Joseph off easy um, to some degree. Lifetime of slavery seems about right um, there. But, um, but the, the brothers, you know, they're, they're so consumed with jealousy that they think they're doing something merciful to Joseph to only send him into a lifetime of slavery rather than kill him. They are consumed with jealousy. And those are the two best characters in the, in the lot here. The rest of the characters in this story, Ishmaelites and Midianites, slave traders, Mrs. Potiphar, this lustful woman who falsely accuses him, or the cupbearer who's ungrateful and forgets Joseph, or Pharaoh who is a tyrant, or Joseph himself. Joseph is a tattletale who brings a bad report about the brothers. Joseph is a braggart who not only has this dream but tells this dream about how everyone's going to bow down before him. And he is a show-off who wears that coat out to go see the brothers when they're having to do the work and he is not. God always uses fallen characters to accomplish his will. Thirdly, circumstances are a poor indicator of whether God is in control. Circumstances, what we can see is a poor indicator of whether or not God is in control. If you think about the the events of Joseph's life from the perspective of the characters who were inside it, it would certainly not look like God were in control. Think about Jacob. From Jacob's perspective, this is a story about how I lost my son, how my son was killed. If you think about it from the brother's perspective... This is a story about how we got away almost with murder. We sold him into slavery. Dad fell for the coat trick. And they are none the wiser. And if you think about it from the circumstances or the perspective of Joseph, every time I've tried to be faithful, they've played a whack-a-mole with me. And I've become a slave. 
and then I've been put in prison. Everything I've tried to do has resulted in nothing but more misfortune. Circumstances are not a good guide to whether God is in control. I have a, an unusual vocational situation. I, for some of you, this may describe you to a T, but I am just about the happiest man on earth when it comes to what I do. I just, I, I genuinely love what I do. Um, I, I feel like it's what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I love working with students. I just, I, I, it's almost embarrassing. I feel like I'm skipping across campus because I'm so happy about the job that I have. If you were to follow my career for the last 20 years, it would not always seem like God were working that out the right way. I was all set to go off and be a lawyer. I was ready to head down to Auburn, and God called me. What I thought was to be a missionary, and I completely changed all my plans. I went another direction with it, and I spent a long, long time preparing to be a missionary. When I was in seminary, living up in New York, suffering from this brutal ice water bath of culture shock up there, for three years, I got up at 2 a.m. every morning to go and work at UPS from 3 until 8 and then go to class afterwards in my grubby clothes and sit through it. My first Hebrew class was a five-week kamikaze Hebrew class in which I did that every day for five weeks and then came home about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, had about five hours of homework before I could sleep a couple of hours, say hello to my wife, and then hit the grind again at 2 a.m. They wore me down. I may meet, be the Manchurian candidate right now. Somebody's going to say the right word, and I'll kill the prime minister of Malaysia or something. It's just one of those kinds of... It was a tough, tough time. When I went to Brandeis, I took one year longer than the average for my program. I took 11 years to finish my program. The average is 10. When I was finishing up my dissertation, I had a 10-day period in which I never went to bed before 5 a.m., and I pulled three all-nighters in 10 days. It was awful. And in the course of finishing my program, getting right to the end, the country that I had spent 15 years, make that 19 years pursuing, fell apart in a civil war. The seminary that I wanted to teach at closed. I got too old. Our student loans got too high. And what I had aimed my whole life for was gone. And so I thought I would have a fallback. I would find a job here. And I couldn't find a job anywhere. If you look at the circumstances of my life three years ago, you would never believe that God were in control. And today, I've gotten to see the end of it. And I'm the happiest guy I could be. Which leads to the fourth point. And that is, we're not always fortunate enough to see the end of the difficult circumstances that we go through. God does not always allow us to see the results of His providence. Jacob and Joseph were blessed to be able to see it. Jacob got to see his son again. Joseph got to see his brothers again and be raised to this wonderful position here. But the truth is, more often than not, we do the plowing, but somebody else does the reaping. We go through tough times, but we don't always get to see the good thing on the other end of it. We don't always get to see the good 
at the end of God's providence. And I think when we go through this, we are experiencing something that is ground very deeply into the Bible itself. There is passage after passage in the Bible that talks about how difficult it is to hold on in hope when we can't see the end of our faith. Think about one encounter that you know of when Thomas did not believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead and said, I won't believe it unless I can see the holes and put my fingers in there. I'm not going to believe it. And so Jesus shows up and says, come here, Thomas. Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. How blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. He's talking about us. We haven't seen the risen Jesus. And yet we hang on in faith to that Jesus. Or another passage that's probably even more poignant in the book of 1 Peter. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter is talking about us. He's talking about those people who have held on for all of their might to a Jesus they have never seen and may not see for some time to come. It is difficult to endure adversity because we don't always know if we're going to see the end of that adversity. And so what we do in the meantime is we hold on in hope and we long for that day when we will see what God is doing. God is always working to accomplish His will. He always uses fallen characters to do it. What we see before our faces is not a good measure of whether God is in control. And let us hang on in hope that we will one day see the end of what God is doing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I pray that you will make this word of your sovereignty, this word of your control over every hair of our heads, every sparrow in the tree, a reality in our lives. God in heaven, let us see what you are doing in our world today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.